Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. Which one was Ben Affleck in? I mean, Why that's the most important not... question. He was in like, the Admiral's the most. Men. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Ben Affleck was in none of these things. <laughs> well, yes. But I know yeah, who you but, mean. <laughs> but great. Okay. So we are going to answer this question. Yes. Great. Yes, we are. Great. Okay. Yes. Great. I am right about that, aren't I? It, it is. You are. Ned no, Allen was in the, the Admiral's Men. Men. Yeah. The, the Admiral's the Men! Where's my punch? Everything I know about this period comes from exactly two movies, <laughs> Shakespeare in Love and Elizabeth. your hosts Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock and together we are Hamlet and this week we're talking about the Queen's men the what the Queen's men the what the Queen's men oh, the men okay. of the Queen ah mm-hmm. the Queen the men the of the Queen not just yes. like generic Queens no or Queen's men <laughs> yes not that we don't love the Queens because <laughs> I love them all but yep. One particular queen. queen. Yeah, yeah, one specific group of men for her. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and come back for more. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Let's start with happy hour. Stupid. Yeah, let's start with happy hour. Clinky. So just like Um, happy minute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a minute, in a minute, there are many days. So that's Juliet. Yeah, I was going to say. Juliet math. You're quoting something. I don't know what, but you're quoting something. Well, okay. take it away. Time. I mean, what is time anyway? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so happy hour is a new feature that we're doing. It's a cocktail of stuff. <laughs> that joke is always going to make me laugh because it's my joke. Uh, it's a cocktail of stuff that makes us happy in this <laughs> in this dumpster fire of life. Such as? Yeah. Uh, things like inclusivity. And decolonization. Speaking of which... I acknowledge the traditional custodians of land that I am on, which are the Muskegee and Creek Nation, and I pay my respect to their elders past and present. And I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Monacan and Manahoac Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. We also get super amped up about anti-racist pedagogy. Yes, we do. And puppies and other soft and fluffy critters. Puppies. And other things that are pure and good. Pippies. Yeah, or kittens. Or like kittens. the one that was living with Jess for a hot minute that she fostered. <laughs> like 18 hours. Oh, so sweet. <laughs> little little, little kitty. Little okay. Bean. So happy hour is a time in which we recommend some shit that isn't terrible and that will maybe also brighten your day as it has ours. Um, so each week, Jess and I are going to give a few recommendations um, for stuff that hasn't sucked for us this week. And I've got three. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. Because you won't be sorry. I'm not sorry. So um, uh, two books on inclusivity and, and on the anti-racist train. 
And actually, really on the decolonization train, when you think about it, and I have been a lot, um, that have helped me contextualize a lot of crap that's been bugging me for a long time, um, are two books. One, Fearing the Black Body by Dr. Sabrina Strings, hashtag Sight Scholars of Color, and Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison. Um, the first book, uh, Fearing the Black Body, breaks down in such clear language the racist roots of fat phobia in America. And she traces it all the way back to basically the Renaissance um, and, and that period, which like, you know, before medical science got its hands on diet culture and fat phobia at all, it was, it was a slave trade issue um, and a way to separate uh, and distinguish bodies, um, which is hideous, but it makes a ton of sense when you think about it. Um, and Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison, um, one, reinforces that, and two, um, helps and helped me for sure figure out that like diets are a sham <laughs> yep. and like wellness nonsense and like equating health and size is a fucking scam. And at the moments when I wasn't like wanting to hurl her book against the wall for things that make me angry that are not her fault, not this author's <laughs> fault, but I was like, I knew it. And I like, you know, it's um it's an emotional ride, but but really good, a really good read, a very thorough, thoroughly researched read. Um, and both of them reading them together really, really helped me break some shit down. Um, and another book that I thought would end badly, but didn't, is Margaret Atwood's sequel to The Handmaid's Tale called The Testaments, which I finally worked up the nerve to read because I was like, this is gonna be this is gonna be sad and dark and terrible. And parts of it were, but it didn't end badly. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but like, it was more uplifting than I thought it would be. Um, and that was great. That, no, it was really great. I was relieved actually when it was over. I was like, oh God, thank you, Margaret Atwood. So those are my, those are my things in the happy hour. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I have two, which uh, the first one is a, a recording of Kim F. Hall's 2016 Shakespeare's Birthday Lecture, um, which is titled, I thought that I had written out the title, but I apparently did not. Hang on. <laughs> Hold uh, for tech. Hold for tech. Uh, it is It is titled, A Fellow Was My Grandfather, mm. um, sh colon Shakespeare in the African Diaspora. Uh, it is available on the YouTubes. And we'll throw a link up for you. And it is awesome because Kim Hall and like, yeah, <laughs> she's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so that you should check it out. Um, and then my second recommendation is a totally frivolous, totally fluffy novel that I read the summer while I was in Oregon um, called American Royals by Catherine McGee. And the conceit of this novel is that when after the Revolutionary War, the American troops and people offered the crown to George Washington, he took it instead Ooh. of like being like, no, I will be president. Ah, uh, and so it's one of those alternative future yes. type of novels. I love those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the House of Washington has been sitting on the, the throne Ooh. of America for, you know, the last 200 whatever years. Um, and then there's a forbidden romance. Ooh, and love that. Yeah, it's so good. I devoured it. I devoured <laughs> it. Um, the sequel 
is called Majesty, and it came out in September. And mm. it's like one percent not as good, but it's still like real fucking good, real fucking Ooh. good. I'm yeah, add that so, to my list. Oh my god, yeah. If you are into this kind of like fluffy happily ever after i i read so many royal novels this summer and because it's my birthday real real soon i just ordered myself a fucking stack of some more fluffy royal novels amazing amazing yeah, so i, I will have it. more recommendations coming Yay. up and yeah. that is our happy hour Woo. clink hooray Great. all right so what the fuck is this episode this episode is weird and we're gonna tell you stuff about it okay um so so basically in this episode we are breaking down um the structure of early modern playing companies and what they were and why they existed at all mm -hmm. uh and the reason why we're doing this uh my cat <laughs> wants to weigh in yes thank you rafe thank you very much he's a star he's a star yes he, he will not be ignored ever <laughs> Um, so Shakespeare did not exist in a vacuum. Vacuums were not invented until like 1950 or as Jess recently found out, <laughs> 1901, I guess. And now we interrupt your regularly scheduled Shakespeare podcast to have vacuum corner with Jess Hamlet. Vacuums is fucking interesting. Okay. 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 So the vacuum uh, was patented, patented, patented uh -huh. uh, in 1901 <laughs> in the UK by a guy named Hubert Cecil Booth. Oh my which, God. Like, yeah. That name. Okay. Can you be more okay. British? Okay. And his, his machine, his first vacuum was called the Puffing Billy. Huh? <laughs> Of a carriage, and it had to be pulled by a horse from place <laughs> to place. <laughs> and isn't that amazing? Yeah. 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 Um, so that's, I mean, there's like also a lot of other stuff, but. Yes. I, the puffing <laughs> billy. The puffing billy. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, England. Yeah. You give yes. us such gifts just over and over again. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, anyway. So yeah. And so now, anyway. Back to the topic at hand. <laughs> back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, we want to explore uh, how our guy, William Swizzlesticks Shakespeare, um, exists in conversation with the other playing companies and their repertories. Um, and hopefully by the end of this episode, you will see why why we're looking at the repertory of, of each company in particular, like that you can tell a lot about the personality of a company by their repertory. So mm -hmm. this is what you can expect to see this season. Tell us about that, Jess. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about like what were playing companies and so on and so forth. Um, but for the rest of the season, we're really going to be focusing on the theatrical repertory of the Queen's men. We're going to give you a list of titles today this is not we want to say not an exhaustive list of titles these no. like i don't know eight plays are not the only plays in the queen's men's repertory no. <laughs> they had a lot more but these are the ones that we're going to talk about so today we're gonna we're gonna give you the list of titles we're going to tell you about 
the first one. And then for the rest of the season, we're going to sort of check in and be like, all right, here's another Queensman play. Don't you want to read this? Um, and then, uh, you know, around um, the end of February, beginning of March, once we've covered a lot of these plays, what we'd really like from you all is to hear from you which of these plays you might like to see us do a full episode on, and maybe, probably, that will be our season finale. Yeah. So yes. that's that's what we've got to say. So, Aubrey, why don't you start us, start us off with, like, telling us what even are playing companies? Yeah. So, okay, I, um, it's important to know what they are, but also where they came from and how a playing company came, how the idea of a playing company came to be. This was a relatively new model um, of of being, I suppose, um, for the theater and for the English theater. So um, due to the myriad poor laws enacted during the Tudor period, and this goes from like the late 15th century through to, you know, the early 17th century when Queen Elizabeth died, um, there were many of these, uh, several of which were signed into law by Queen Elizabeth herself. I think it was like three of them at least. Um, and those laws themselves are too intricate to get into now because of like legalese and stuff. But basically the poor laws um, designated who was considered a vagabond and a, like a low life and a beggar, and which is something you should not be right. Uh, and individual actors were just a hair above being considered vagabonds, just like barely on the social strata, like actors were down at the bottom with the hobos, right? And it, vagabonds could be punished. They could be, quote, set in the stocks and starved for three days and nights, end quote, among other punishments. So so they could be punished. Nice. Yeah. So, like, to be, um, you know, think of anyone you know who's an actor now, right? Uh, they are freelance, probably, right? Um, and, like, taking gigs at will. You know, that's how the business kind of works now. Actors in Shakespeare's Day could not do that because they would be set in the stocks and starved and punished for three days minimum. Like, they were vagabonds. Um, so in order to avoid such punishments and that stigma, actors had to incorporate uh, and have sort of adult supervision in the form of a patron, which was usually a member of the aristocracy and or Her Majesty's government, who would basically sponsor a group of players, AKA a company, uh, and vouch for them as relatively upstanding citizens. Um, think, you know, back to your childhood sports days of like baby soccer or T-ball or something. And like the name of whatever company was sponsoring your team is like on your uniform. I That's kind of, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like my mom was a lawyer and she sponsored my T-ball teams. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so like her law, uh, her, you know, practice was on our uniforms. Right. That's kind That's of like what this really, was. Really, really good analogy. I just want to say like, that's so good and Thank smart you. and useful. And I feel like I'm saying that, like, I am surprised that you came up with something <laughs> that was good and smart. And useful, I have my not. moments. I'm just like, like, that's the best way I think I've ever heard it explained. So Thank you. And I'm going to steal Thank that and tell the students. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. So they had they had to have a patron, right? They had to have a sponsor. Um, and and that, of course, entitled that patron to slap their name on the company. And then they could, you know, rove around. And that patron uh, got them gigs, you know, and helped to get them gigs when they were on tour uh, and things like that. Um, and from there, 
the companies themselves actually, as they evolved and as that model evolved, got really good at honing this new financial arrangement to their advantage. Um, and they eventually uh, invented the sharer system that allowed guys like the Burbage family, right? James Burbage and his sons, Richard and Cuthbert, uh, and Shakespeare himself to advance their social station um, by earning money as a company, right? Um, that didn't come until a lot later, but it was um, this company model that allowed that business model to happen. Right. So Jess, tell us who are some of these playing companies. Ooh, girl. I'm gonna yeah. tell you so hard. Yeah. Um, so there were there were a lot of playing companies in the early modern period. Uh like Queensman is one of the earlier ones. And a lot of them like underwent name changes. Yeah. Yeah. They did. We'll yeah. get into that probably. Um, so some other ones that you may have heard of are the Lord Strange's men or Often that is pronounced the Lord Strang's men. Mm. Um, I'm not sure which one is correct. I'm not sure I care. Also, I think strange is more fun to say. It so is. So that's what I'm going to say. It's more fun to think about like a company of strange men too. <laughs> right? Mm, kind of. Strange men. Mm. <laughs> yes. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, we also have Lord Sussex's men, Lester's men, Warwick's men, Worcester's men, so many men. There were so many men. So many um, men. We also have Lord Chamberlain's men, which were, they were one of those that underwent a name change. They were promoted to the King's men. Um, this is the one that we know that Shakespeare was part of and eventually a shareholder in. Uh, also, we have the Admiral's men. This is the one that was run by Philip Henslow and headlined by Ned Allen, made famous in the documentary Shakespeare in Love. Why, yes. Um, mm -hmm. But the Queen's Men is who we are talking about today and for the rest of the season. Um, the Queen's Men were formed in 1583 at the express command of Queen Elizabeth herself. And then we have Scott McMillan and Sally Beth McLean, who wrote like the book on the Queen's Men. It's literally titled The Queen's Men and Their Plays. Yeah. And they say, quote, when the Queen's Men were formed in 1583, they were the best acting company in England. That is because the government official responsible for assembling the new company, Sir Francis Walsingham, had the good sense to consult the master of the revels, Edmund Tilney, about the actors to be chosen. Tilney was in a position to know about actors. As master of the revels during the previous five years, he had been responsible for arranging the dramatic performances given at court each Christmas season. He would have known which actors pleased the queen and which were cooperative with authority, two considerations that might have weighed about equally to a man in his position. He, like, he knew some shit. Also, yeah. Edmund Tilney made famous by the documentary. Get out of my love. brain, woman. Um, <laughs> and so if anyone good, else right? consults the other documentary from this period called Elizabeth, starring mm. my girlfriend, Kate Blanchett, yeah. um, Francis Walsingham, also played by Jeffrey Rush, who played <sighs> Philip Henslow in Shakespeare in Love. Um, okay. Walsingham, Walsingham was her spy guy, right? Like yes. in that, yeah, he was her mm -hmm. spy guy, like had his little networks of little birds everywhere, mm -hmm. right? That guy was forming yeah. this company. I just want people to understand like how deep that goes into the government. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. kind of major. It's kind of fucking major. Yeah. When yeah. you Google Francis Walsingham, his like title literally is spy master. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he was the secretary of state. He's remembered as spy master. Also the spy master. Yeah. Uh, so the actors in the Queen's Men were like the Olympic team of playing companies. You know, the MVPs drawn from a bunch of other companies like um, uh, the, the uh, like in the Olympics. You're so cute when you're trying to think of sports. 
Yeah, no, like the basketball, <laughs> the time when we won the gold medal in the 90s, maybe. And it was like Shaq and MJ yeah. and Kobe and yeah. LeBron and all those guys Charles from all those teams. <laughs> yeah. And I, think I was thinking Stephen of the women's Curry. national soccer team, too, because they're like yes. the best athletes on the planet. But they've been they were yes. pulled for the Olympic team from a bunch of clubs around the country. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's how this works. Yeah. Yes. That's. Yeah. That's anyway, only the best for HRH. Exactly. I have one major, major question, though. Mm. Which mm. one was Ben Affleck in? Which company? Ben Affleck was in The Admiral's Men. Ned Allen and The Admiral's Men are here. The Admiral's Men! What is the play and what is my part? <laughs> we interrupt this previously <laughs> scheduled <laughs> podcast to give you our rendition, reconstructed through memory only, of our of the documentary Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> okay, no, you know, you know what is going to happen is I'm going to watch that movie like tonight or tomorrow yeah. and I'm going to realize how we got the lines wrong and then I'm going to issue a correction. No, but you said it right. I remember. I, what I mean, is yeah, the play but, and what is my part? That was definitely Memorial Reconstruction's fake. Uh, I know, I know. Okay. Anyway, he was in The Admiral's Men. <laughs> Ned Allen in The Admiral's Men. <laughs> so, They're out on tour. They are. But then they came back. <laughs> then they came back in the Pursuit. nick of time. What is the play? Anyway. <laughs> are you going to do it like that? I just, it's my favorite, it's my favorite thing. Okay, wait. So Gentlemen, this, this good end. A word with one of you. Are you no, going to do it like welcome. that? The Hurley Burley Shakespeare show is dead. Welcome to Jess and Aubrey recreate Shakespeare in love by themselves from memory in a podcast right now. It's what I've always wanted. <laughs> Oh, oh the day has babe. finally come. It's my moment. It's my yes. time to shine. Yes. Okay. Oh, man. This is going to make for some great outtakes today. All right. <laughs> I'm so loopy. Okay. So why do we care about any of this is the question we asked at the beginning, and I'm going to try to answer it some more. The short answer is... Um, it adds texture to one of our primary interests as a podcast, which is to help folks gain a better understanding of the time period and this person that we're culturally, perpetually obsessed with. Um, Macmillan and McLean also argue that the Queen's men were most likely intended primarily to tour for political and propaganda reasons, maybe, probably, uh, and that Shakespeare's career likely began with this company. That's the argument that they are making. We cannot prove it because, for one thing, um, while the Queen's men were really out touring, and that is documented, uh, that happened during those pesky lost years of Shakespeare's life, of the 1580s, where nobody kind of knew where he was or what he was doing. But, you know, some evidence that they bring to support it um, one thing is that, like, even though nobody can account for what Shakespeare was doing at that time, um, what they do argue and what they do say is that so many plays that Shakespeare ended up writing later appear to be rewrites of Queen's Men plays. To quote Macmillan and Maclean, Yet, wherever Shakespeare got his start, the Queen's Men did not take him as seriously as they took Marlowe, the influence of whose plays they sought to curtail in some explicitly anti-Marlowe efforts. Thus, while Shakespeare was dealing with the Queen's men by rewriting their plays, the Queen's men were dealing with Marlowe by replying to his. 
Shakespeare's effort was more effective, especially in that he learned his method for rewriting plays of the Queen's Men from no one more obviously than the Marlowe, whom the Queen's Men were trying to reject. Um, so, like, none of these companies existed in a vacuum. They all talked to each other, right? Uh, kind of the way, like, rappers get in rap battles and they start, like, referencing each other in their raps and, like, dissing each other. Um, Macmillan and McLean are basically saying that that's kind of what these playing companies were doing with their plays, right? They were responding to each other's plays or dissing each other's plays. And eventually, um, according to Roz Knudsen, whose research we'll get into in a little bit, um, they kind of complemented each other deliberately, right, to help each other out. But that's And that's her argument, and that's for a little bit later. But anyway, that's, that's why. Context matters. That's all. And this is a fascinating company to start with. That's, that's my Absolutely. story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, so what did the Queen's Men do? Well, why don't I tell you? Yes. Um, according to Andrew Gurr, who is uh, considered in some circles to be an authority on this topic, it was a dog-eat-dog, cutthroat duopoly between the Admiral's Men and the Chamberlain's Men, where each company entered a ring and only one left. No, that's not true. Uh, where yeah. each company, quote, <laughs> divided up the best players and settled comfortably across town from one another, which is far less exciting than, like, a cage than match. Than a cage match? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, However, there were more theaters in London than there were companies, so the duopoly argument doesn't hold water for a lot of people like our dear friend and patron saint, Roz Knudsen. According to Roz, who says Andy Gurr is wrong. In her uh, sweet little southern accent, Andy Gurr is just wrong. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Um, all, All companies' survival depended on one another, and they timed their offerings and repertories to help each other thrive. She also argues that the government intervention inadvertently helped create this new economic model. Okay, so Roz says, quote, the Admiral's men might have had an exclusive lease at the Rose and the Fortune and the Chamberlain's men at the Theater and the Globe, but companies came and went at the Swan, Curtain, and Boar's Head. So the Queen's men uh, being composed of 12 men instead of five to six, quote, enabled enabled it to act a new kind of play built on a larger scale than ever before. In particular, the development of the history play, which was such a distinctive feature of the later 1580s and the 1590s, would not have been possible without a large company to handle the performances. And that's just fucking true. Okay. Yeah. That is just if you've ever seen or read or thought about a history play, they have like, I don't know, 78,000 characters yeah one million characters yes so you cannot in fact do them with five people you need 12 you must must have have 12 (laughs) must have 12 gotta be Um, gotta be a dirty dozen (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so the Queensmen may also have done a trial run of what the Kingsmen did so successfully later, um, which was operate in two locations on top of touring outside of London. So they had an indoor space and an outdoor space. You know, the Kingsmen had the Globe and the Blackfriars. Outdoor, indoor, right? Yes. So the company entertained at court primarily in the winter, and then during the summer, they toured the towns of the Shires. They may have reached as far as Scotland in 1589. Um, In London, they were initially allowed to perform only at the Bull and the Bell Inns, although in later years, they may have acted at James Burbage's theater as well. So where are we going from here in the season? Aubrey. Yeah. Um, well, and just for clarity, when we say James Burbage's theater, his theater was oh so originally titled Ooh. The Theater, just to make the things theater. extra generic. So we don't, it's not like we're not saying its name. It's, it was called The Theater. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So one final point uh, is that 
Roz, that Roz Knutson argues is that to the London playgoer, the runs of different companies at stages around London might have given the marketplace a variety and vitality that profited every organization. A necessary feature of that variety was the company repertory. And she's the one who puts forth the argument that you can learn a lot about the personality of a company by studying their rep. So that means that over the course of this season, we're going to be looking at a few of the plays, as Jess said, not all of them, but a few of the plays uh, in the Queen's Men's Repertory, meaning um, for those who are not familiar, right, repertory is is kind of when you have a like a package of plays that you run uh, one after the other. Instead of doing just like one play at a time, they had several plays in their back pocket or in their repertoire um, that they could pull out at any time on the command of the Queen, right? Yep. And they were the Queen's Men. They were at her command, right? Fun side story in researching this, I found out that part of the reason why the Queen expressly ordered this company to be formed was that for years before that, uh, the Earl of Leicester, a.k.a. Robert Dudley, a.k.a. Joseph Fiennes, um, from the documentary Elizabeth, um, Dudley and what's his name? God damn it. It starts with an R. Burley, sorry, Lord Lord Burley. Um, they had, they each, this doesn't start with an R. Um <laughs> They each had their own playing company and the queen would like alternate which one she invited in to do like Christmas shows and they were in competition with each other and they kept trying to like win her favor by these companies. Right. And she was like, after a while, it just got to be too much. It was like extravagant. And she was like, nope, I'm making my own company. Y'all need to shut up. Go away. You men, these men, these men. Um, so anyway, uh, what is in a repertory? Here are the plays. We're going to name all of the titles today, but we're going to go in depth into uh, we're going to summarize one at a time um, throughout the season so that, as Jess said, by by, you know, late late winter, early spring, we will have uh, something for you to vote on that will be uh, featured as a 101 episode in our season finale. So first title is The Famous Victories of Henry V. So then we go to Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay. Mm -hmm. Then it's The Old Wife's Tale. And that is followed by King Lear and his three daughters. Mm. Then there's the troublesome reign of John, King of England. Mm. Uh, We also have the true tragedy of Richard III. As opposed to the false tragedy. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) And then there's the tragical reign of, is it Salimus? Selimus? Salimus? Selimus? I don't know. I don't. <laughs> Salimus or Salimus, I think, is. Okay. I'm uh, going to go with Salimus. That was my instinct. Yeah, it's but not I will... Selimus. <laughs> it's a... <laughs> okay. So it's iambic. Uh, and I'll just keep saying it the way I want to. Yeah. Um, and those are the titles for now that we're going to go over. Yeah. So today, uh, to kick us off, I am going to start talking about uh, the famous victories of Henry V. Mm, okay. Yes. Which was written probably around 1586 it's the earliest play on our list uh it was printed in 1598 okay so there's we've got a a wide gap of time between writing and printing this is not at all unusual um so here's the plot real quick and real dirty just come with me on this journey Mm, mm -hmm, okay mm -hmm, i'm ready prince henry and his fellows commit a robbery and after a tavern affair, are arrested and taken to prison. At the sessions of court, the prince strikes the Lord Chief Justice and is committed to prison. 
On his release, he visits his sick father and later, thinking the king dead, takes away the crown. Hmm. Father and son are reconciled and the old king dies. The new king banishes his former companions, forgives the Lord Chief Justice, and declares war on France in support of his claim to the French crown. The hmm. English are victorious at Agincourt against all odds and suffer few casualties. Henry accepts the French succession and is to be married to the French princess Catherine. Huh. Sound familiar? Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, Suspiciously we know... so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We know that the Queen's men performed this at the Bull Inn in Bishopsgate sometime before June 1587, but we don't have a more specific date than that. So that is our first play in the Queen's Men rep that we are telling you about today. Yeah. Do you, do you have questions for me, Aubrey? About famous, the victories. famous victories? No, no. I'm just thinking about um, the argument that Macmillan and McLean make about like the reason they sent the Queen's men on tour was for like propaganda reasons. And I think it's pretty widely agreed among a lot of scholars that history plays in general were meant to like bolster the monarchy or bolster like mm. nationalism, right? Mm -hmm. And like mm -hmm. national national identity, right? So it kind of makes sense to me that like a lot of the titles that we just named too are historical, they're history plays, right? Yeah, yeah. So like going um, around the countryside telling your quote unquote history that's sanctioned by the monarch makes a whole lot of sense. So among all of the other new things we're introducing in this episode, uh, and new features. We have a new game that I'm so excited about. I'm so excited about this new game. Okay, uh, it's called the Lost Plays game. It's a new game. Oof. Did I mention it's Oof. a new game? It's a new game. Okay, and you invented it, and I'm so I proud. I did. I love it. I I I love making up games. I swear yes, to God, there's like a so sliding glad. doors alternate future where I I'm like a game maker and not. Yes doing what I'm currently doing. Anyway, um, if you ever meet that version of me, please send her my, I'd like to meet her. Okay. Um, so we're, we're basing this game, the lost plays game, uh, basically on the same set of rules as the game we used to play called Jess and or Aubrey fails at Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the game of your, um, but with, but with titles from the loss from, uh, of the lost plays from the lost plays database. What is the Lost Plays database, you ask? Well, I will tell you. It is a treasure trove, a wiki-style forum um, for scholars to share information about Lost Plays in England. I think yes. we did a burbage break on Lost Plays database. Did we? Or we did We did a burbage break on Lost Plays, which I'm sure I mentioned yeah. uh, the, the LPD. But continue. Cool. Okay, great. Well, yes. Um about the England's Lost Plays from 1570 to 1642. Um, its purpose is to add lost plays to scholarly discussions of early modern theatrical activity. The editors of this wiki-style forum believe that lost plays are a potential source of significant information on playwrights, playing companies, venues in London and the provinces, repertory studies and audiences. The database provides a web-accessible, web-editable site for data on these plays concerning theatrical provenance, sources, genre, and authorship. Unlike most other wikis like Wikipedia or whatever, um, this one's not open to public editing for what I hope are obvious reasons, <laughs> right? Because not that many people have access to the kind of information that would allow you to reliably share to the Lost Plays database. Um, our beloved patron saint, Rod 
Roz Knutson is a contributor to this database. We will post the link to the database on the episode note on the episode landing page on our website so that you can explore it. Um, but basically, so how this game is going to go, like lost plays, right? These are plays that we have the titles for because they appeared in places like Henslow's diary and such, but the texts themselves are lost, right? They, we don't have them. We don't actually know what happens in, say, the Isle of Dogs. We just have its title, right? It's about dogs. It's a play about puppies. It's very clearly a play about puppies. Um, so this game, basically, we're going to take a lost play title and we're going to say what we think it's about. We're going to tell its story in 60 seconds. So that's... Those are the rules of the game. And you can't say that we're wrong because these plays are lost and you don't know and you can't tell us we're wrong. Um, um, yeah. Are we then going to read what the database says about the play? Yes. Great. Let's okay. definitely do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll start with a title. Um, and the way I figured we could kind of randomize this, Jess, is that wh whichever one of us is going to be the summarizer, the mm -hmm. other one of us can look it up like find a title. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. yeah, and it's it's organized alphabetically by title or by year. So I figure we can pick a letter of the alphabet and then pick a year in between and we'll give a range for that for that letter. If you go on the database, it's pretty clear. Um, so it's kind of like randomly pulling a, a number, a letter and a number out of nowhere. Um, so would you like to go first or would you like me to tell the story first? Like, yeah, no, I'll go first, uh, unless you want to. Cool. I you don't seem you seem excited. It's I game. am just you excited can. generally about this. Okay. Um yeah, sure, I'll make some shit up tonight. I'm okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um in that case, let me hit me. I'm ready, I think. Maybe. Um, okay. So I'm gonna pick a letter in a year, or you're gonna pick a letter in a year? Yeah, so I'll pick a letter. Um, which letter am I digging tonight? I want the letter. J. Hmm. Okay. Uh, now I need you to pick a year between 1565 and 1653. Oh my. Mm hmm. Hmm. How about, let's see what was going on during Queen's Men's time. So like, give me 1585 or somewhere around there. Is there a 1585? Uh, I've, I've got a 1586. Great. Let's do that. Okay. J fifteen eighty six. The history of Job. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Um, okay, do you have a timer set? Oh, uh, uh, uh yes. Sorry, uh, you get a minute. Yeah. Okay. All right. I history of Job. History. Okay, great. All right. So this guy, Job, not the biblical Job, uh, it's another guy named Job who just happens to have the name Job and he's like bitter about it because everybody else knows the other Job and they have like expectations of him um, that he can't meet because he's just normal Job. He's like Job normal. <laughs> um, so anyway, Job normal goes about his very normal life um, tilling fields and one day he comes across like he he's like digging and he's tilling. I don't know how till tilling happens. Um, and he like hits a hard object in the dirt. And oh my goodness, it's this uh, it's this like lead casket um, with like a time capsule of stuff in there. And okay, I've got 15 seconds left. And inside, like he opens it up and a genie pops out 
Uh, and the genie is like, hey, Job, I can make you into any other biblical character if you want, but that's all I got. I'm a one trick genie and that's all I know how to do. End of play. <laughs> End of play. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. how it ends. It's a cliffhanger. It ends on a cliffhanger. You never know what, what he picks. <laughs> it's a short play. It's a really short play. All right. Let me let me tell you what the Lost Place database tells us about the history of Job. Thanks. Um, so the only reason that we know that this play existed is because it appears on a list of lost manuscripts um, that was cataloged by a guy named John Warburton. Uh, okay. And it, it appears as Hist of Job by Rob Green. So maybe it was written by Robert Green. All right. All right. Um, do, 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 do. It is probably... <laughs> a biblical history and or biblical tragedy uh -huh. probably uh most likely the source for the history of the job is the book of job from that would Bishop's make our Bible. protagonist job really upset i think that everyone just yeah. assumes it's the biblical job i'm just saying yeah. um <laughs> he wouldn't like that so okay so then this is this is what the the lpd editors have to say there's only one reference to the story of job in green's other works in green's vision which was written in 1592 the narrator makes a passing reference to the devil that grudged at the sincerity of job mm. um together with thomas lodge robert green wrote another biblical drama a looking glass for london and england in about 1589 that play dramatizes the prophet Jonah's struggle to encourage the inhabitants of Nineveh to repent mm. their sins. The play, which is frequently read allegorically, depicts the corrupt court of Rosny, a king who, surrounded by flatterers, is blind to the possible repercussions of his sinful behavior. Along with George Peel's David and Bathsheba in 1593-ish, A Looking Glass constitutes one of the final attempts to revive the tradition of biblical drama in England. Between mm. 1590 and 1620, contemporary records show that at least 13 biblical plays were commissioned. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, I don't know my Bible well enough to know yeah. completely the story of Job. No. Like, I know the name, but... He just had a lot of trouble, right? He just... Yeah. Just like had a lot of... Just, like, had a and he, like, life. patiently endured them or yeah, something or like that. Yeah. maybe he didn't patiently endure them. Maybe he was cranky about it. We're yeah. going to hell. It's fine. Yes. Uh, you have to believe in hell to go there, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That was fun. Well, that was fun. Yay. I like your story better, I think. I think I like my story better, too. Yeah. I really want to find out what happens to Job normal. <laughs> um, all right. Let's 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 gossip a little bit. Yeah, shall please. We? Yes. Okay. Take it away. Um, so this week in my BritLit class, I taught uh, this summer's radio theater production of Richard II, which was done by the Public Theater in New York with uh, a cast and creative team that was all people of color. Um, if you have not listened to that, you fucking should. First I'm excited. Of all, I want to hear first. it. Yeah. It's so good. Okay, it's four episodes. They're an hour long each, okay? Um, and the play itself takes up like maybe two thirds of each episode, like maybe. And the rest of it is the actors and the director and people like 
Ayanna Thompson <gasps> and Jim Shapiro Ooh. talking about race and racism and power and Shakespeare and America and Black Lives Matter. And Ooh. it's so good. Okay. So anyway, you should listen to it. You can, It's it's a, available as a podcast, free to download wherever you get your podcasts, also streaming through the public's uh, website. Um, yes. But specifically, I want to throw you all to an article uh, that was written, um, which is I like a an interview basically with the director Sahima Lee uh, talking about race and Shakespeare on the radio. Um, you should read it. You should listen to the thing. Then you should read everything else that everybody else wrote about this production. Uh, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. So that's the first thing that you should do. Yay. Okay. The second thing <clears throat> is that the Saint Anne's Warehouse is right now, right now, this very moment that you are hearing me say these words, um, streaming their uh, trilogy, the Donmar trilogy, um, which is a really cool set of plays. It's Julius Caesar, One Henry IV, and The Tempest. And they were produced and marketed uh, as a trilogy. It's an all-female cast. Harriet Walter stars in all of them. And the conceit is that they are inmates in a women's prison putting on these plays and sometimes there's some slippage between the play and then the like the frame narrative of them all being women's prisoners um so these are these are streaming now for for free for right now when does this episode come out next monday the 19th the 19th okay so so you you will if you are just hearing about this you are missing julius caesar and that's okay because you will have another chance um so beginning october 16th and then through the 22nd you can stream henry four and then beginning the 23rd through the 29th you can stream the tempest and then the 30th through the november 1st is the the trilogy marathon binge weekend where you can see all of them i know what i'm doing for my birthday shoot yeah um i have not seen any of these uh however my dear darling soul sister friend and friend of the podcast molly ceramet has seen them and loved them and recommended them highly and is teaching the tempest production in her dramaturgy class right now Um, so get after it uh i mean you could not pay me to to watch the henry four but i I think i will watch the caesar and the tempest (laughs) I hate Henry IV. Uh, so anyway, tragic that is the gossip that I have. Tragic. So I need to issue a correction because <laughs> yeah, you do. sometimes we get things wrong and it's only fair that we set it right when we realize that we've done something wrong. Right. Uh, so um, I realized minutes after the <laughs> release of our season premiere episode um, that I made a big boo-boo um, last week. Both of us, because of my writing, kept referring to Cunabellan as a Bronze Age king, um, when in fact it was the Iron Age. Uh, the Bronze Age lasted from 3000 to 1200 BC. The Iron Age spanned from 500 to 500 BC to about 300-ish AD, which is which was is what covers Cunabellan's period, as well as his Celtic ancestors and his successors, <laughs> uh, and the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Just because it's my second favorite time period does not mean that I can remember what it's called. LOL, my brain is a sieve and everything is terrible. I just, cool. you know, I just fucked up. So anyway, it's the Iron Age. It was the Iron Age. Yeah, thanks. I just, I was like, I had major anxiety 
this whole week being like, oh my God, some nerd on Twitter is going to like at us before I can fix this. And like, I need to fix it. And it took all of my self-control to not get on Twitter immediately being like, don't at us. I know I fucked up. Okay. That's just where I'm at. You could have done that. I could have, but I didn't want to. I didn't, uh, whatever. That's cool. (laughs) So anyway, that's our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next time for The White Devil 101. <gasps> I'm so excited. The White Devil. We're finally doing it. We're Yay. doing it. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake no S, on Twitter. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which I record the Muskegee Creek Nation and pay my respect to their elders past and present. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land currently referred to as Stanton, Virginia, the Monacan and Manahoac nations, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. And now... It's Vacuum Corner <laughs> with Jess Hamlet. We interrupt this very important podcast to let yes. you know <laughs> very irrelevant shit about a vacuum. Oh, vacuums. About the vacuum. The vacuum. <laughs>